Welcome to the Positive Turbulence Podcast, Stories from the Periphery. Here we journey to the edge to talk to turbulators about their experiences creating positive change. Hi, I'm Rob Brodnick, your co-host. Pete Ingstrom is currently the co-founder and board president of At Home Chesapeake, an innovative not-for-profit program for seniors. They want to create a new social covenant on aging so that seniors can age in place. At Home Chesapeake is a member of the Village to Village Network, where Pete is an active board member. Prior to this gig, Pete served in the U.S. Air Force Intelligence, Innovation, and International Negotiation. He is also a founding leader of AMI. To describe him as a force of nature might be an understatement. Hi, I'm Karen Zadinka, your co-host. A lot of us struggle suggesting change at work. Our ideas get shot down. We're told we're obviously passionate about something, but that's really code for don't bring me your crazy ideas anymore. Now imagine trying to bring change in the military, a place where people literally get shot down, where things are tightly regimented for a reason, where a crazy idea could get you court-martialed. Pete not only managed to innovate in this environment, but has brought the powerful lessons he learned about innovation, managing change, creativity, and leadership to his current venture where he's rethinking aging. Coming up, deep wisdom on creating effective change, balancing strategy and innovation, and changing our approach to aging. The Positive Turbulence Podcast is brought to you by AMI, an innovation learning community that is celebrating 40 years of supporting innovation and creativity for organizations and individuals. You can learn more at aminnovation.org. Also, would like to thank Mac Avenue Music Group as a contributing sponsor. To hear our theme song, Late Night Sunrise, and other great music, visit macavenue.com. Pete, I, I've known you for a number of years now, and every time that I get to spend time with you, I come away wiser and happier. I mean, it's just for so many different reasons. I mean, I, I consider you a, a true genius and a big heart. Whatever I say now, it's not going to give Karen the full picture. I think of the experiences that you've had in your, your life and the insights and the, the secrets and non-secrets, some things that I'm sure we're not going to be able to talk about that you've been engaged in. But if you could, just give Karen a short timeline of your career and some of the transitions so she has a little insight into the span and depth. I can divide my career into two parts from the innovation perspective. Those before I met Bob Rosenfeld and Stan Gruskovich in about 1980. That was the before and the after. And the before, I actually got involved in a lot of innovation, but I didn't really know what it was. I didn't know contextually how it works. So let me review just a touch of that. My family, I think there can be a genetic component to innovation, actually. <laughs> my, my grandfather, he went to work Minnesota, and he, he is the one that was credited with creating the uh, Cheerio, the machine for the Cheerio. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the story, well, this is just the beginning of living with innovation, but not knowing what it was. Because all of the cereals that were created then were granular cereals. Nobody had come up with anything else. And General Mills was desperately trying to figure out a way to beat the competition. And he is the one that designed the machine for the Cheerios. Hmm. And he was self-educated. He didn't have a high school education. He was self-educated. And he went from there to the Daisy Corporation. And he's the one that created the Daisy Repeating BB Gun. Oh, wow. <laughs> From Cheerios to BBs. Yeah, he had the patent on both of those where the, the rod that goes down the middle of the old Daisy rifle with the spring 
He is the one that created that. And then he went from there and was recognized by Northrop Grumman. He worked on the Norton bomb site in the Second World War. He was one of the scientists on that. The significance of that is I had polio as a kid. Uh, it was basically paralyzed. I was in an iron lung. What? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had bulbar polio. I can remember being wheeled into the death ward in 1949 and being the only child alive in the morning. Everybody else had suffocated. Oh, yeah. shit. And when I went home from that, my grandfather carried me around all the time because my legs were atrophied until I got into the sister kidney rehabilitation program where I got my mobility back. And we would routinely, he said, let's go invent stuff. And we'd go to his basement and invent yeah. things. And, you know, just you don't cause. think just because. It just was a fun because. thing to do. It was the fun thing to do. Yeah. My father, and I'll get to the real career here in a minute, but it, this is very important, I think, to understand the the basis where that just seemed normal behavior to me. Yeah. My father uh, was a forester, and my uncle is a very famous forester. The School of Forestry at the University of California is named for him. And my aunt was the first woman forester in the United States. Wow. No big deal. The big deal is my father and my uncle are the ones that solved the Dust Bowl. They figured yeah. out the mathematics of how to put the right kind of trees on the section lines to keep the dirt from roiling up, and it basically slowed the winds down sufficient that the, it slowed the Dust Bowl down. Wow. He went from that, he was a, a World War II pilot, and when he came back as the director of forestry in Oklahoma, he said, you know, why don't we get the B-25 surplus bombers and turn them into water bombers? And in Oklahoma, those were the first water bombers, water bombers that were used in the United States. My dad did that. And he was recognized by the Society of American Foresters as a forester emeritus as one of the the top innovative foresters in the United States. And many of the forest regeneration centers in the southeastern United States are the Carl Albert Engstrom Forest Regeneration Center because of his innovative ideas. Hmm. So for Whoa. me, you know, if you grow up with that, having grown up with that, but let me tell you, when he retired after 40 years, he was making $17,000 a year because foresters didn't make money. And my mother, had a who had a degree in economics, also didn't believe in in creating money or wealth, she went and started the League for the Blind in Oklahoma City to teach homemaking skills to, to blind people. So they were committed to making a difference, not making money. So we never had money. Yeah. You know, it sets a frame in your mind. Well, if you look at something, the pattern, you just look at it and you see something different, well, you fix it. Yeah. Unfortunately, that doesn't work in the innovative world because in <laughs> most cases, Rob, you're laughing because you understand, in most cases, what you see is very hard for you to communicate to the organization in a way that they can hear. Yes. And, and, <laughs> and, and the problem with that is it's, there's a great Gary Larson cartoon about all the lemmings heading over the cliff. Uh -huh. And one lemming is standing up saying, hey, we don't have to do this. <laughs> and and I, I found my life before Bob Rosenfeld in the category of, hey, we don't have to do this. Mm -hmm. and being told to shut up and go sit in the corner. So now my career, I, I started life as a nuclear combat crewman in strategic air command. No big deal. I was in the first group of lieutenants to be assigned to nuclear duty because they weren't sure we could handle it, and we could handle it. And of course, right away, I saw things at Grand Forks when I was there that I thought needed to be changed. And the wing commander, and I'll never forget, he says, Peter, 
He says, you may have some good ideas, but he said, we don't have new good ideas when we're dealing with nuclear weapons. <laughs> and he was right. I just didn't understand that. Okay, so that's fine. So I was on a combat crew, and then I ended up going to intelligence school because I wasn't mm -hmm. smart enough, and ended up in Vietnam, mostly in Thailand. And I have several stories that we can talk about there that are really interesting from an innovation perspective. But just as a snapshot from there, back to Headquarters Strategic Air Command and Long Range Planning, from there to the National Security Agency, where things started to escalate up the chain of command as far as where I was, from NSA then to the Office of the Secretary of Defense, to the War Colleges, from the War Colleges back to Washington, where I was uh, Director of National Security Policy for the Air Force, and can tell Russian stories that you just wouldn't believe. Rob's heard some of them. But. I have. And then, after 30 years, retirement. Except we don't call it retirement in the groups that I hang out with. We call it refirement, because the, the issue is not to stop. The issue is then to give back. Yeah. Along the way, back in 1980, and this is a 30-second vignette that is kind of priceless to me, I was on a, a strategic planning cell of four of us at Strategic Air Command, and our, the vice commander, the three-star, said, hey, you guys have one year, and you have an unlimited budget. You can go talk to all the smart strategic people in the United States and find out where Strategic Air Command should be going in the year 20." 20. Wow. Surprising. Yeah, and here we are. Here we are. So off we went. And one of the articles I read was on this idea about understanding creativity and innovation because really innovation wasn't buzzword bingo in 1980. Creativity yeah. was. Yeah. And it was written by this young chemist at Eastman Kodak called Bob Rosenfeld. Ah. And so I called Bob and we talked probably, our first phone visit was probably two hours, two and a half hours. We instantly connected. Mm -hmm. And Rob, you understand how that could happen with Bob. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, hey, why don't you come up? If you got a budget like that, why don't you come up to Rochester and let's talk here? I said, I'd love to. He said, be sure and wear a uniform because nobody in Rochester ever sees anybody in a military uniform. <laughs> and I said, okay. So anyway, that, that started that process. And we can talk about AMI in the, mm -hmm. just of the overall conversation. But that was the uh, turning point because I discovered that there's other people out there that could see things that I could see and see them much better than I could see and had much better understanding of how to get those ideas actually operationalized. Because uh, being an innovator is a very lonely position to be in for the most part. I finished my Air Force career and tried to figure out now what? Mm -hmm. And the now what is actually as exciting to me as the last 30 years of my career because I'm involved in what is called the village-to-village -village network. And what it is, is an attempt to figure out in the United States and in the world how we involve senior population and enable them to stay in their own homes. Yeah. Because nobody wants to move out of their own home. Yeah. And what happens, of course, is you get older, your sphere of connectivity gets less and less because your children go where the work is. Yeah. So they're not around you. And the people around you after age about 65, they don't even know your name in your mm -hmm. neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And so we found a way to create what we call virtual villages. And a virtual village is not a place where people go. It's a way to communicate, usually on the telephone or on the computer or person to person, to enable, we call it less than family, but more than friends. Yeah. And it enables small communities to work with each other 
in the process of aging to enable people to stay in their own homes. And it works. We have several hundred villages now across the United States, and we have probably 250 to 300,000 people involved in this. Mm-hmm. AARP says this is the first grand social movement of the 21st century. Hmm. Wow. I know when I talked to Secretary Castro when he was in the last administration, he said, you guys that are aging, you're on your own. He said, you are like the pioneers on the plains of Kansas. And he says, you look as far as you can see and you don't see another soul. The problem with that is if I give a small town in Bethany, Oklahoma, $100,000 and say, fix the bridges or support your senior population, Mm -hmm. they've got to fix the bridges. So you're not going to get any money. You're going to have to figure out how to do this on your own, you aging Americans. So it's a huge problem. And it's not just unique to the United States when we have our national meetings once a year. We have people showing up from China. We have people from New Zealand. We have people from Canada, all facing the same aging problems in different dimensions. So that's what I now have my lips locked on on the fire hydrant. And it's a perfect, (laughs) perfect, perfect, perfect place for unbelievable amounts of innovation to occur. Because what we've captured early on in this process are the early adopters. And the early adopters have figured out how to create communities of practice across the United States. And the cross-fertilization of ideas is just legion at this mm-hmm. point in time. So that's mm-hmm. the snapshot. Wow. Okay. You know what? I, I'm going to take you back a few steps. I tweaked on something while you were talking. You mentioned it's a lonely to be an innovator and very frustrating. And certainly I have seen that in the world. I've felt it in the world. I've worked in the world of digital design and technology for a long time. I know a lot of people who are working in that space who are really frustrated with not getting traction for their ideas. It can be hard to keep going. It can be hard to decide to stay with something. It can be hard to to know what to do next. Do you have any sort of insight or wisdom? You mentioned the word wisdom. And wisdom is a very, very specific thing. You know, if you look at knowledge, you start with bits and you aggregate the bits together and you get data. And you aggregate the data together and you get information. And you aggregate the information together and you get knowledge. And if you're really, really lucky, you can glean from that knowledge very small bits about knowledge about life and it becomes wisdom. So wisdom is a very specific category of criticality, and it's very, very hard to find. There is some wisdom about innovation. It's a collective understanding at this point in time. It's not. It's something that many of us have experienced but weren't aware of what we were experiencing. And that is, in, in most cases, if you look at innovation in its rawest form, it is change. Yeah. And change is dangerous. Mm. It is dangerous. Whether it's step change or ramp change inside an organization, the perception of the people inside the organization is this is a dangerous act. Yeah. And the significance of that is that organizations are made up of only two types of people, risk takers and risk avoiders. Mm-hmm. And the risk takers routinely, if they take risk, they're shot on sight. Because the risk avoiders are saying, hey, wait a minute, I make really good buggy whips here. I don't need to make leather covers for this Model A Ford. And so you have to collectively understand that when you're trying to bring an idea into an organization, you keep it below the event horizon until such time as you can normalize it in a way that the organization can hear 
operationalize, act on, and believe in. Yeah. And that's a very hard calculus to actually make. I know one of my stories that I like to tell about that problem is at one point I was called in to the chief of staff of the Army. He was a four-star general and I was a colonel. And I was an Air Force colonel and he was an Army general. And he said, it is alleged that you know something about innovation. <laughs> and I said, yes, sir, that's, that's fair. It's alleged. And, and he said, and I'm not using the name intentionally here. And he said, I want to make the Army more innovative. What do I need to do? And I said, for God's sake, sir, never say that you want to do that. And he looked at me and he said, are you nuts? I, I just told you I want to make it more innovative. And I said, as soon as you say that, all the innovators out there are going to stand up and say, hallelujah, there is a God. And here's the ideas. And the rest of the army is going to shoot them on sight. <laughs> and I said, what you really want to do, I said, you know as well as I do. And this is certainly true in any organization. There are pockets where innovation is happening in spite of bad bureaucracy. Yeah. It's happening. And I said, you need to go find those people and you need to support them with whatever they need because they've figured out how to work within your system and make things happen in spite of the fact that things are bad. And I said, those people will pull the light aids along. Those people will pull the organization along in an innovative way and will do it within the context of the organization without blowing it up. Mm -hmm. And he said, you're right, I can do that. And, you know, one of the famous words that I captured from Bob Rosenfeld many, many, many years ago was something he said is you need to figure out how much innovation an organization can stand before it blows up and then back off just a little bit from it. Without the experience of somebody telling you that, it's high diddle diddle down the middle you go and boom, you get blown up. Right. And that's yeah. why the, the, the chief told me what he told me at the time that he told me that because I didn't understand how important it was to slowly make the change that was critically important to make. So that becomes a innovative aha for the innovators out there that they need to understand that just because they can see it doesn't mean other people can. And I told the innovators at the war colleges that I was talking to, there's a huge difference between telling people how to fish and showing people how to fish. I said, it's very important for the organization not to be offended by what you can see. So you need to show them why it's important for them to go the way you think they should go as opposed to tell them the way they should go. And that becomes a huge aha as far mm -hmm. as I'm concerned. Yeah, without a doubt. Let me ask you a question, Pete, and maybe this is selfish, but I'm really interested in, in hearing your answer and maybe a couple of stories attached to it. You've had your feet both in the world of strategy and the world of innovation, sometimes at the same time, sometimes at different times. Talk to me a little bit about how those two things mix together, when strategy and innovation play well together and when they maybe pose each other in certain kinds of ways. Love to hear some insights. What a great opening. <laughs> This part occurred before Bob Rosenfeld. So I was very green in understanding how to bring change about, but nevertheless was successful in several cases in making it happen. When I went to Southeast Asia as an intelligence officer, I was not a combat guy. I supported combat guys. That's a big difference. I, I only got shot at a few times, and I mean, it, that was no big deal. But the guys that were out flying combat every day the young Marines that were walking on the perimeter with their dogs, they were 
really in the eye of the storm their whole life when they were over there. So I had this little intelligence shop. It was the only intelligence shop in Southeast Asia. And we did all of the targeting for all of the bomb strikes that were being done. And our F-4 guys, they were not doing well. They were flying over surface-to-air missile sites and would routinely get shot down. And, and it was a big deal, obviously. And the intelligence shop I had had really, really smart kids in it. Uh, I was the old man as a young major, but we had some really smart kids. And so I sat down with them and used something my father had said, and it was long before we used it at AMI, and it's what if. And I said, what if we can figure out a way that our pilots know where these surface-to-air missiles are? Because we know where they are. We can see them on our photography, and they change positions every day, but we still know where they are. And we came up with the idea of creating what we called a bullseye map. And the bullseye map was a, a small five-by-seven laminated map of where they were going to be flying. And we would circle where the, the surface-to-air missiles were. And they would put it on their little lap board. Our guys, after they saw these for two or three times, they wouldn't fly without them because it told them where not to fly. It was a good idea. And the significance of this in the story is this was inside the context of what the organization understood. So everybody said, hey, wonderful. This is great. The next thing nearly got me fired very close. When they were flying combat, they were being engaged by the MiG fighters, the North Vietnamese. When they came back to debrief, they could not remember what the strategy was. This goes to the strategy, Rob, that you were asking. What the strategy was that the North Vietnamese were using, because they're, they're in the fight of their life at 500 miles an hour, and, and the pucker factor is very high. I sat down with our guys again, and I said, let's play another what if here. What if we could figure out a way to understand what the North Vietnamese strategy and tactics were? And this was truly an out-of-the-box solution. And it was not my idea. It was one of my youngest airmen. In those days, we had tape recorders that we would send our messages home to Mama on, if you will. And the tape recorders were these big, clunky devices that used cassettes. And he said, well, what if we recorded them on a tape recorder? One of the other guys said, well, you can't do that. No way to put a tape recorder into an F-4 fighter bomber. And one of the other guys said, well, what if we created a patch cord that would be in between the microphone and his system so that any time he talked, it would record? And we said, well, we might be able to construct that. So we sent another guy over to the fabrication shop, and we, we fabricated one of those. And then we went over to the base exchange, and we bought a tape recorder. And we talked to one of the pilots that was an early adopter and said, hey, how about we take this tape recorder and put it in your in your plane and then you can tape what's happening. He says, hey, what a great idea. Where are you going to put it? We said, we don't know. You're flying high G's. Where do you want it? He said, how about Velcroing it underneath my seat? We said, sure, why not? So we Velcroed it underneath his seat and off he went and he did it. And all of a sudden he had an ability to reconstruct the actual problems that he ran into. Now, that's not the story though. Now, everybody wanted to fly with one of those. We went over and bought every tape recorder that was at the base exchange. I think we had 30 of them. And we did it with our own money. We didn't have any money. And we created uh, patch cords for them. And so everybody's flying with them. Now, here, here's what happened. The vice wing commander, who only flew once a month so that he could get his combat pay, came in. And one of my young kids handed him the tape recorder. And he said, what's this? kid looks at him and says, well, sir, it's your tape recorder to tape your mission. Well, wait a minute. Where did this come from? Whose goddamn idea is this anyway to put this in my 
who's doing this? Well, Major Angstrom came up with the idea. Well, he's not flying combat. We can't put these in the, you know, that thing, that thing could destroy my wapita wapita wapita. Boy, he was having a piece of me. And standing behind him, thankfully, was the wing commander. He said, you know, I've used that a couple of times, and it sure did help when we were trying to debrief. Oh, well, I guess it's okay then. Well, clearly, we had moved outside the organizational norm of what was reasonable from the vice wing commander's position. And if only he would have been there, I would have been court-martialed. There's no question about it, because that was just something you couldn't do. That's just not possible. You can't do that. And yet, it solved the problem. It was both a strategic issue for our wing and a tactical issue for the guys flying combat because then they could figure out also how to save themselves because they could see what was happening. So, Rob, it's a long version, but that's it was really interesting how that came down. Rob, I have said it before, but I'll say it again. I love AMI meetings. They are so unlike any other conference or professional group that I go to. AMI meetings are an end-to-end curated experience. They are a thoughtful, connected, influential community. An AMI meeting is peer learning in a super creative environment. I encourage all you innovators, designers, product managers, and strategists to learn more at aminnovation.org. That's fantastic. Just to extend it a little bit more, do you think that an organization can take innovation as a strategy? Do you think it's something that can be intentional or is this a a dance between two things that kind of live separately? And that is kind of the crux to the issue in most cases. I know I'm working with Bob right now, Bob Rosenfeld, because he's working some very specific innovation issues with the Air Force. And I told him he needed to meet with the commanders before tried to do this because what what you're asking i think it can be if the leader is willing to take the risk of allowing innovation to happen if the organization is set up so that it's running like a swiss watch and they don't want to make any changes it's not going to happen but if the if the commander says or the of the boss says you know we probably need to look at that. Then his staff is going to come along and agree with that. A specific example to what you were asking has happened at the National Security Agency when I was there. And this is kind of funny, but it's, it's, it's absolutely critical. The civilians at the agency when I was there, the director of research and development said, Engstrom, you military people are summer help. We were here when you got here. <laughs> We'll be here when you leave. <laughs> and they wow. had little, little respect for what we were trying to bring in to the organization. And they were developing a crypto device that was going to go in the B-52 bombers. And this was a big, clunky, huge device. And I told the guys that developed it, not going to work. And he said, go away. We know what we're doing. And they developed one of the early models. And I said, you know, before you go any further, how about doing something that for me. They said, what's that? And I said, let me take you to a B-52 wing, and I want you to upload that into the cockpit of the B-52. Well, of course, the only way you get into a B-52 is up about a two-story ladder in the nose of the airplane. And it's a very small compartment that you have to get into to go up this ladder. And they said, yeah, we'll do that. Called the wing commander. 
at Minot Air Force Base in February, which is in North Dakota. And I said, hey, I want to bring some National Security Agency people out to field test their device. Oh, sure, bring them on. Well, it was about 15 below zero when they went out to pad. Combat crewmen know in that kind of weather, you always wore nylon gloves. You wore those kind of gloves so that when you touched a super cold surface, it would freeze your finger to the surface because of the moisture in your fingers. Well, we certainly didn't give these NSA guys those gloves, among other things. And so they're holding this big clunky device trying to crawl up the ladder. And you can't crawl up the ladder and hold the device and and crawl up the ladder at the same time. It doesn't work. And even when they got up to the top, they couldn't get it through the hole. And they said, well, you didn't tell us that you couldn't get it through the hole. And I said, yes, I did. Well, obviously it failed. The test failed. They went back and they had to do a redesign. Now, the significance of that, though, and this gets to the, the leadership issue, Rob, that you were asking. That made it all the way up to Admiral, who was the director of the agency. And he decreed after that that any devices that were to go into our operational fleet, whether it's submarines or bombers or cruise missiles or strategic missiles, there had to be an NSA field test at the early level of development. So all of a sudden, the problem was solved because the boss said, yeah, we want to introduce innovation, but we want to introduce it in a way that makes sense. And I learned from that that if I don't have the boss's acceptance of what I'm suggesting, it isn't going to happen because the civilians would have outrun us every time. It is very important to have the senior leadership on board with what you want to do. So from senior leadership to seniors, you're now innovating with your virtual villages. Tell me about those. What is a virtual village? How does that work? It is so cool. (laughs) A virtual village is, is a group of people in a small community that choose to meet with each other about once every two weeks for what we call coffee and conversation. And they get together and they become friends. They don't start out as friends, but they become friends because we encourage to share, to really share what's going on in their life. Because as you age, Nobody is prepared to age, believe me. The things that start happening to you. Wait, wait. You're telling me I'm going to age? <laughs> oh, no. Not only are you not going are not only are you not going to age, but you're going to discover that the floor is further away, your feet don't work quite like they used to, and you can't remember why you're there in the first place. But, yeah. But so these people meet once every two weeks. What happens then is if Martha needs a paprika, but she doesn't drive anymore, Julie can pick it up. Or if yeah. uh, somebody's gutters are filled up and they're afraid to, mm-hmm. uh, who can I use to do this that's not going to really screw me over? Well, you can use Billy because we used him and it works fine. And so it cross pollinates. The process of aging inside those little communities. One of the innovations that I can actually be proud of that was my idea is as my parents aged out in Oklahoma City, I discovered I was ill-prepared to help take care of them. Nobody prepares you to take care of your parents. And my parents were in their 80s and in their 90s. All of a sudden, I'm flying to Oklahoma City from Washington every three weeks Mm -hmm. to look in on the caregiver. Where's the checklist on how you're going to work with the caregiver? There is none. And so it gave me an understanding of not the issue of dying, but the issue of living because they had the pour over wills and they had the bypass trust and they had everything laid out on top of the television set. So when they died, we could easily check it off. But what is the process of living as you age? 
And there was nothing to really yeah. address that. So once I got involved in the Village to Village Network, I said, just like you need a financial master plan, you need an aging master plan. And so we created what were called the MAPS, the Master Aging Plan for each mm-hmm. individual. Within the individual villages, you pair off with each other and you build your own map. The things about living, not about dying. Where are your passwords? How do you pay your bills? If you fall down, who do you want to notify? Uh, what medications do you take if, if a emergency person comes to pick you up and you're laying on the floor and they don't know who to call, they don't know what you take, they don't know where to take you. And so we put those on memory sticks and the memory sticks go on refrigerators. So that if a caregiver comes in and you're incapacitated, it gives them an ability to help you get through the crisis, whatever that crisis is. Boy, has that been a big deal nationwide. Let's back it up just a teeny bit. Tell me the name of the project. You're referring to Villages. You refer to sure, Chesapeake. Sure, sure. Just yeah. give it, me, yeah. Our website is called the Village to Village Network. That is our national website, and it has situational map in it that shows where all the villages are and contacts for everyone. I'm on the board of governors of that. Actually, we call it board of directors. Individual villages, uh, there's a term that is out there. Once you've seen one village, you've seen one village because every village is different uh, because every community is different. Uh, We've discovered several things that are profoundly important to this. One of the great things that happens at our national gathering We try to glean from these various communities ways to either cross-pollinate or to find good ideas that can work in all communities, not just those specific communities. It's a very complex dynamic that you're working on when you're trying to say, Mm -hmm. what what are the support needs of a high-rise that is full of seniors as opposed to a community that has good economic income and good, good support? is fundamentally different, and it requires a totally Mm -hmm. different approach to it and a total openness to what is possible and what is not. Mm -hmm. So these villages are a group of people who come together on a regular basis? What is the the mechanics here? There's three or four kinds of villages. There are villages where you pay a fee and you get services. There are villages that are all volunteer. There are villages that are hybrids. If you go to a place like San Francisco Village, it has probably three to 4,000 members, which, wow. oh yeah, this is big stuff, of which maybe 50% of them are volunteers and 50% of them are wow. people that are using services. Because what happens as you age, and I can speak to this, is you don't want to stop giving back. How do you stay relevant? And I know my father, when he was 92, he was still riding along at that point with Meals on Wheels. At 90, he was still driving Meals on Wheels. At 91 and a half, his Parkinson's got so bad that he couldn't do it. And he sat on the front porch, I'll never forget, in his rocking chair and said, I'm just not worth anything. I can't help out anymore. (sighs) And that is a common issue. When we started our village in Severna Park, Maryland, we said to people, what can you give us? And they look at us like, yeah, you want my money. We said, no, we want no money. Can you knit? Can you bake cookies? Can you run a telephone line? Can you drive? What is it that you can give to your fellow Severna Park citizens that will enable them to have a better quality of life? Each of these villages, for the most part, are set up around 
giving back, paying it forward. I did a lot of driving to the uh, Wilmer Eye Clinic at Johns Hopkins for people that had macular degeneration. They couldn't drive anymore, but they could sure bake cookies or they could sure call Mrs. Jones to be sure she was all right. They needed a ride to the Wilmer Eye Clinic and they were not destitute, but they were not well off. The way we describe it in America is that if you're rich, it doesn't matter. You can do what you want. If you're poor, there is a social safety net, not particularly good, but it's there. But if you're in the middle, you're stuck in the middle. And there is no infrastructure there to help you age in place. Each of these community efforts usually is started by a couple of spark plugs that say, hey, let's get together. We've gone to this national meeting and we saw how well it's working and how enthusiastic people are. Let's set up a village in Paducah, Kentucky. Then they call us and say, hey, can you send us anything that will help us? And we say, yeah, as a matter of fact, on our website, it's called Village 101. It's free. It goes on the Gifford Pinchot philosophy of the more you give, the more you get. So everything we got, we give away. It's not for charge because nobody has any money. And so you, you give it away and it allows these small communities then to start putting people together. Sometimes it's done through a church. The church does, does not really sponsor, but the church enables the community outreach in a way that is profoundly better than what just the population of the church gets. Many of these villages uh, serve as an educational component that you don't get out of the area agencies on aging, or you don't get out of the local churches. What happens then is people become very, very positively engaged in their new horizontal family is what it amounts to. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. and it works. Again, each one is different. So there is no formula. We have some ground truth that we know to be true. And that is all, all given away freely at the, at the national level. Our own local village, if you wanted to look that one up, that's, that's called athomechesapeake.org. And again, it shows uh, what is happening within our community in Annapolis, Maryland, and the surrounding areas. Each one is different. The national website has the identities of all the other villages. And so when people say, well, maybe we could start one in Omaha, Nebraska. And the answer is you go to the website and you look where Omaha, Nebraska is and see if somebody has done it close to Omaha or in Omaha and wham, you're in. And if not in Omaha, then you call somebody in Kansas City and say, hey, we're starting a village in Omaha. What do we need to know? Those of us that are on the board, we get calls all the time. I got a call from Oklahoma City because I grew up there and they said, hey, we're starting a village here. Can you send us any of your briefing material? that you've given across the United States on starting a village. I said, sure. It's a national initiative to enable better aging in place for Americans. That's, that's wonderful. And you're just in America? No. <laughs> <laughs> the Canadians have been very much involved in this. The New Zealanders, surprisingly, are involved in this. And in New Zealand, an example of innovation is, is really pretty cool. Most of the produce that seniors eat comes out of their gardens in their backyards, except when you get old, it's pretty hard to work a garden in your backyard. And so the New Zealanders came up with a plan to allow high school students to get credit in high school for working in their village. Oh, that's so cool. Backyards. It's just lovely. 
the Japanese have been very interested, but from a different perspective. They've come to a number of our meetings. I've spent a lot of time with the Japanese. The problem in Japan is that the young Japanese go to work where the work is, which is in the cities. The aging Japanese are in the countryside, and the societal norms are that you take care of your own family, but you don't worry about the guy that's next door. The seniors next door to you can be dying, and you won't do anything about it because you're taking care of your own family. So they were very interested in trying to understand how they could import a philosophy that would enable rural Japanese to take care of their own aging people. It's a very complex problem there. The Chinese have come to our meetings. And in China, it's a much even more pervasive. It's a very difficult problem in China because all of the young workers have gone to the cities for work because there is no work in the villages. The rural Chinese seniors are dying at dramatic rates because there is no there is no social security. There is no ability to take care of the seniors. They're on their own. There's a a lot of work in Europe being done because when we started the village concept in the first place, if you think of what was a village in the olden days, a village was designed to take care of the young, to take care of the old, and to keep out the scammers. And so when we initially thought about how we would design our virtual villages, they were based on that model. How do we involve seniors mostly, and to a lesser extent, juniors? We went to... Uh, Anne Arundel Community College, which is the big community college in Anne Arundel County where I live. And we talked to their senior strategic planning class on the village movement and the village concept. And we said, what do you visualize when you see a senior? It was both embarrassing and angry, made us angry. So they said, seniors are people that go to their front porch and sit in their rocking chair, watch the world go by and get food stamps and food assistance. And this was their senior planning kids. And we said, hold it, wow. hold it. We, we need, we need, whoa, and they, whoa, and they came back right at us and they said, okay, are you on Facebook? I said, well, yeah, I'm on Facebook. They said, are you on YouTube? And I said, no. And they said, are you on, and they went down the list of the newest parts of technology. No, we're not. And they said, your problem, not ours. And they said, we know that you guys are out there and you've got many things that you could give us in our Anne Arundel classes, because you've had world-class experience, but we have no way of finding it. We have no way of knowing it, and it's your responsibility to give it to us. We went, whoa, that's a big deal. So the perception of aging in America is that seniors are people that go to their front porch, and they sit in their rocking chairs, and they wait for the food truck to come by. I know when I was in the Pentagon, we used to say we need to change the direction that we're going by about three degrees. And we said, if we get one arc second, we're going to do good. <laughs> because it's so hard when you're talking about a massive societal change in this case. So we take it in little doses. That's why we have little villages. Uh, but some not so little villages, some pretty big villages. I've thoroughly enjoyed this with you guys. Me too. Well, thank you. It's great. Thank you to AMI, who have nurtured us in developing this podcast as the source of so many of our guests. And of course, the founder, Stan Griskevich, is also the author of the original book and, dare I say, the four-star general of Positive Turbulence. Stay tuned for our Positive Turbulence moment, where Pete talks about being a systemic plague in the Air Force. AMI is a pioneering nonprofit organization comprised of committed individuals who foster and leverage creativity and innovation in organizations and society. 
AMI identifies leading edge innovation, shares experiences, sponsors research, and recognizes innovation in creative processes. Find out more at aminnovation.org. And thank you to Mac Avenue Music Group, our contributing sponsor, for providing our podcast soundtrack, Late Night Sunrise. And here's our positive turbulence moment. And I, I, and we'll cover this. I was only fired a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> Best words were by the three-star in headquarters Air Force, and he said, Engstrom, you are a systemic plague upon the Air Force that I'm going to personally eradicate. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. That, those are firing I said, words. I said, That's good. General, I'm really sorry you don't understand what I'm trying to tell you. I've lived with that for my whole <laughs> life, and, and I tend to find humor in it now where before I just found frustration. Right. Sure. Yeah. Be sure to tune in next time when we'll be wrapping up Season 2 with our Learnings episode. Rob and I will dig into how our perspectives have shifted, our key takeaways, and we'll provide a thought or two about how Season 3 is shaping up. Head over to PositiveTurbulence.com to find out more about us, our wonderful sponsors, Positive Turbulence, our guests, or check out our very cool and very diverse reading, watching, and listening to list. Until next time, keep the turbulence positive.